from the Center for European Reform. This is the CEA podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the latest CR podcast. I'm Ian Bond, the Director of Foreign Policy at the CER, and it's my great pleasure today to have as my guest Katja Glaude, who's a non-resident fellow at the Centre for European Policy Analysis, a think tank in Washington, and also a, a native of Minsk. And there's quite a lot to discuss about Belarus today. So I, I've been following events in Belarus on and off since I first visited in 1992, not long after Belarus gained its independence from the break after the breakup of the Soviet Union. And I have to say, I've seen a lot of bad things happen in that time. Uh, we had the disappearance of several opposition leaders in the late 1990s and the imprisonment and persecution of many others, including presidential candidates in the decades after that. And last year, we had the extraordinarily brutal suppression of protests against Alexander Lukashenko's latest improbable election victory, uh, in which some protesters were killed and many people were tortured. But even I was not prepared for Lukashenko to force down a commercial flight between two EU member states and to Roman Pratasevich and his fiancée, Sofia Sapiega, who were returning from Athens to their home in exile in Vilnius on, on Sunday. Uh, their, their Ryanair flight was diverted to Minsk after a transparently false bomb warning. And just in case the pilot had any second thoughts and decided to head for Vilnius after all, it was escorted down by a fully armed Belarusian fighter aircraft. Well, this must, I must say, is an unprecedented act and an outrageous one. And it produced unusual unity among EU leaders at the previously scheduled European Council meeting on Monday. So the EU is now preparing a, a range of new and enhanced sanctions against Belarus, more sanctions against individuals and businesses there, targeted economic sanctions, and a ban on Belarusian airlines flying to or indeed even over EU member states. Uh, also a ban on, or not a ban, but advice to EU airlines not to fly to or over Belarus, which is pretty good advice after what happened on Sunday. Uh, and the result is when you look at air traffic control maps at the moment, um, there's a hole in the European donut Uh, over Belarus. Everywhere else is full of planes going backwards and forwards, but not in the air over, over Belarus. So I suppose I have an opening question to Katia is, is who is Roman Pratasevich and why on earth did he matter enough to Lukashenko that he would risk doing something so extraordinary? 
Hello, Ian, and thank you for having me. Um, well, that's um, a good question. Let's start with Roman Protasevich. So Roman Protasevich is an opposition Belarusian journalist and a blogger um, with a very clear opposition agenda, who was uh, one of the co-founders of the very popular Nechta channel, Telegram channel. And now he is also the editor of another very popular um, Telegram channel called the um, uh, Brain of Belarus. I should say probably that uh, independent media in Belarus have been uh, under a lot of duress all the time, and particularly since 2020. And the government has tried to um, really curtail on the internet. So most independent media went on Telegram, and this is now the most important source of independent information for people inside Belarus. And it matters also to the authorities because they understand they, they cannot control it. If we look back at um, August 2020 events and um, the um, protest which erupted after the fraudulent presidential election, it was not actually the conventional opposition, but it was the Nechte channel that was behind mobilizing people and behind coordinating the protest. And uh, most recently, in March, Nechte uh, Telegram channel also published um, a, um, a video documentary called uh, um, A Golden Bottom, where it disclosed details of Lukashenko's personal wealth and also some details of his private life, particularly unpleasant details con uh, concerning his son. Nechte is a, a sort of personal enemy to Lukashenko. And we know that Lukashenko is very revengeful, revengeful very emotional person who sometimes puts uh, pragmatic calculations at the back of his mind, and he really tries to target his um, enemies. And um, Roman Pratasevich is, as I said, one of his personal enemies. But of course, we must not forget the broader picture that society is being repressed in Belarus. Um, journalists are particularly harassed because they're really seen by the authorities as someone who mobilizes society thanks to their live streaming of uh, at events. And therefore, um, the authorities are really trying to quell civil society, to squash um, independent media as much as possible because they want to retain uh, to the situation quo answer. They think that if they prohibit independent information, people will again start liking Lukashenko and his popularity will hike, which is, of course, unrealistic. Um, his popularity dropped to 20%, and his regime is not really capable of leading the country. And people understand that, and they don't want him. Yeah. I mean, that, that's an important point that his his popularity is so low at the moment. I mean, obviously, the Protasevich uh, detention is an extraordinary act, but as I recall, it came just a few days after the the um, arrest of various people from another independent media organization within Belarus, didn't it? To Tutbiwai. So the, would you say this is part of a, of a kind of coordinated attempt to drive the independent media off the air? 
Yes, definitely. A week before the arrest, the arrest of Nurse, a um, forceful takeover of Tudvai, which was the most popular news service in Belarus, which was widely read not only by, by civil society, by those who don't support Lukashenko, but also by the regime itself. And Tudvai was far more than just a news service. It was, if you wish, a Belarusian Google. It was a search engine. It had various other online platforms. And it really was kind of particularly for civil society, for those who opposed the regime, uh, for those people who just passively disagree with it. It was um, a source of information, but it was also a place to form an alternative agenda, to kind of a place to try to create an alternative, you know, second society in the sense of Adamiknik's, um, of Adamiknik, like, you know, society which is not dependent on the state, which is grounded in different principles, and Tutbivai was instrumental in that. Mm. Again, if we look at, you know, at a wider context, what is happening in Belarus that obviously the regime is trying to um, survive and for example in uh, uh, January Lukashenko wants to hold a referendum that would help him to pass constitutional amendments that would further enshrine his power and therefore the regime wants to have very clear very clear perched space um, before this referendum is held so that there are no alternative sources of information because yeah because it wants to have the amendment passed without any new public protest and as recently the head of the central election commission said in belarus the barnacle wars is believed behind the main force behind the falsification of results last year she said that the local elections, which were also expected to be held perhaps in parallel with the referendum, would now, um, under the proposed amendments to the constitution, be postponed until the parliamentary elections, which is 2023, because, and she spelled it out very explicitly, that um, elections can cause political danger, can cause political danger, they destabilize society and we want to, want to avoid them. So clearly the regime wants to um, purge the space um, ahead of the referendum as much as possible. Right, right. I, I mean, you, you've brought up there the, um, the wider context and obviously this, this current phase of repression in a sense began with the rigged election last August. Um, I mean, just thinking in terms of, you know, the, the, the arc of that crisis, we had these mass demonstrations uh, last summer and autumn and even going on into the, the winter when, you know, climatic conditions were not ideal for marching on the streets of, of Minsk. But since then, things have gone much quieter. You see much smaller demonstrations. I mean, do you think that the taking down of the independent media of Nechta and Tutbai and so on, does is that going to have a big influence over the ability of the opposition to, to re-mobilize themselves now in the spring and the summer again? So is Lukashenko going to succeed in, in you know, clearing this ground before the um, constitutional referendum, if that's what he... he holds? Well, I think the authorities are obviously wrong to believe that these are the telegram channels only who kind of, you know, stare the revolution uh, being sponsored by Western governments. 
Um, the Telegram channel still function. Obviously, it's harder for uh, many Belarusians to access them. For example, you know, if elderly people could easily access internet website, it's harder for them um, to use Telegram. So that restricts some segments of society. Um, but on the other hand, I think what is really what is behind why people are not coming to the streets is actually a very high level of repression, which concerns not only the media, but society at large. Several laws, for example, have been changed to make it much harder for protesters to protest. One of the most, I think, outrageous laws is, for example, law on extremism, which was amended to the effect that any dissent, any opinion which in one way or another criticizes the government can now become, uh, can be interpreted as a criminal offense. People who protest, um, for example, the fees form those who are arrested under administrative code for protesting have been um, increased. Um, criminal charges have been increased. Arrests have been increased. And of course, we have seen courts handing down very uh, big uh, imprisonments and sentences to, to people. Like if someone wrote graffiti or wrote on a shield of a police officer, these people can get to, can have like two or three years in prison. And that's obviously that very high level of repression, that's what really frightens people. And the part of sort of immediate imprisonment, we can also think of an attack on businesses, for example, the businesses, business companies, cafes, which went on strike back last October when Mrs. Tikhanovskaya called for a general strike, 240 um, business companies that we know of only have been closed down and Lukashenko spoke about that publicly and people have been dismissed from state-owned companies which are still uh, um, which make up the bulk of Belarusian economy all the people who were noticed on uh, uh, CCTV protesting outside of companies have been fired so it's really a massive intimidation attack against society. Mm. Yeah, I, I was going to ask about the, the the strikes because obviously, you know, the, the in a sense, the sort of the holy grail for any protest movement is that you you get out beyond the usual activists and you start to get mass support from society. And for a period when, you know, people were coming out of um, some of the state-owned uh, heavy industrial plants in Minsk, it looked as though that might be starting to happen. But I mean, has that kind of repression and intimidation of strikers and ordinary workers been successful then? Unfortunately, it has been. Uh, it has been because uh, indeed these companies are state-owned, because the heads of these companies are directly appointed by the local authorities because there are no independent trade unions in Belarus. It was during only during this last uh, um, year protest that people started actually leaving these uh, um, state-owned um, trade unions and starting trying to organize their own independent trade unions. Basically, people have no rights. And again, even the old Belarusian uh, labor code, and now it has been amended to make it even harder, but even the old one prohibited strikes on political demands. So people are really dependent on the state. And this is one important aspect. And the other important aspect is that it actually takes time 
for civil society to self-organize. Civil society has always been restricted in Belarus. And as you mentioned, many bad things um, at the beginning of our podcast, um, civil society never enjoyed freedoms in Belarus. Lukashenko really um, hollowed out institutions, including, as I said, um, you know, trade unions, political parties, and um, um, and also civil society groups. So it was only during it started during the pandemic last year that people started self self organizing. So they started, um, you know, a campaign to help medical workers, and then then during the protest people continued that but it's still very much rudimentary and in order to self-organize to set up independent unions and to organize national strike you need a lot more you need much stronger internal civil society organizations you need also the capacity of the opposition even if they're outside to have their people inside these companies to set it all up and as we know from history if we look at the polish solidarity it obviously took them some time to bring about national strike so it will take also time in Belarus. Um, economic situation is not great, so it might help, but also there is another argument that workers might become more cautious and they yeah. might not want to um, go and strike if the if the economy starts getting really yeah. very poor. I mean, before all of this started, one of the, the few sort of bright spots in the Belarusian economy was that um, it was developing a, a software industry wasn't it um I, I mean that as far as i could see was treated in any case as an object of great suspicion by lukashenko but has has the private sector been um forced backwards even more um with the uh, the the repression since last august yes it has um many business uh, small business owners um and medium business owners they actually have left belarus obviously some are still there um the it sector which you mentioned has been obviously particularly hit by repression because these where it was the core of the middle class that emerged in belarus over the last five or six years and they were at the forefront of protests and they were at the forefront of those new demands that we saw in Belarusian society but also very technically these people were behind this smart IT solutions political solutions that were used during the elections for example this alternative vote uh, count system called vote and um, uh, so now this obviously the IT sector has been targeted there were um, we always see these figures that how many uh, thousands or hundreds, sorry, hundreds of companies have relocated to the neighboring countries. There is a poll that one online um, publication has been doing for several months and every month. It says that new 15% of the IT sector is thinking about leaving Belarus. And it's quite easy for these people, obviously, to leave because it's they're not really linked to a particular place, a particular, you know, material possession is not that type of business. And um, um, for other businesses, it's obviously harder. But as I mentioned earlier, that 240 cafes, restaurants, shops were just closed because of strike. Yeah. Um, so yes, so the um, private business is under duress, definitely. Yeah, yeah. 
Now, uh, there were rumors initially when Protasevich was detained that um, the the Russians had uh, been involved in this operation. Uh, that seems less clear now, but they certainly were involved in um, the detention of two opposition figures in Moscow who were alleged to be plotting a, a coup against Lukashenko, which looked highly dubious sort of suggestion, but there we are. But um, you know, as as the EU has been imposing further sanctions on uh, on Lukashenko, um, Russia's support for him has got louder and louder. And you had some pretty extraordinary social media posts, um, both in terms of the abuse directed by Russian journalists against Protasevich, um, and in terms of the support. Um, from Margarita Simonyan of, of RT for uh, for Lukashenko and what he he'd done, what what role do you see Russia playing in this crisis and how it's unrolling at the moment? You know, do you see this as a moment when Putin senses an opportunity to achieve this long term project of union with Belarus? Yes, yeah, definitely. Russia is seeing that as a great opportunity to get a better hold on Belarus, to get it more into its own um, information space and political space. And it does not really have to be through formal agreements. Um, obviously, there are these uh, um, talks, political conversations all the time about um, signing the so-called integration roadmaps. They have been on the agenda since uh, 2008. On Thursday and Friday, the Russian Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin is visiting Minsk. On Friday um, this week, Lukashenko himself is going to Sochi again to see Putin. Um, Russia is obviously pursuing its own interests, and um, uh, there are you know, different arguments, but I think most agree that probably Putin would like to get rid of Lukashenko as well, because he is not so reliable. But at the same time, he is perhaps the most reliable among those people who are in Belarus, with whom Russia has some um, connections and negotiations. Um, but obviously, uh, Lukashenko is becoming also more squeezed between the West and um, between Russia and his own space for maneuvering is shrinking. Yeah, I mean, that's a very important point. And I, I, I've seen, I mean, there are, these arguments have been around for a long time, but I've seen them a lot in, in the days since Monday, a lot of people arguing that, you know, the EU by imposing tighter sanctions on Lukashenko is simply uh, driving Belarus into the arms of, of Russia. Um, I mean, do, do you think that that is um, something that the West has to take into consideration when it's uh, deciding what sanctions to impose, or or does it have to assume that Lukashenko acts in accordance with his own logic and his own um, consideration of his interests, and you know whether he allows himself to be brought further under Putin's? I'm not sure what uh, protection is not quite the right word. I think, but you know, I mean, I think I'd say krisha if I were saying it in Russian, wouldn't I? A roof, but. Um, uh, you know, is 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 Lukashenko going to be motivated to get closer to Putin because the EU is being mean to him, or is that not really the logic that he operates by? Yeah, well, I think Lukashenko has already severed his ties with the West, um, one way or another. Um, 
before even August 2020, he's already been pushed into Putin's arms. And um, people in Belarus, they really don't like to be when the West considers um, Belarus within the wider context of looking at how Russia would react to that. That's really, I think, what, what makes Belarusians upset because they really think that uh, the West should base its policy on its values and on its norms and that real politics is uh, not part of the game. Um, it's in my view, it's in inevitable that the tighter the sanctions are on Belarus, the more Lukashenko will be going towards Putin. And obviously, if if there are sanctions from the West, then Lukashenko would hope that Putin will would bail him out. But on the other hand, Russia has also been putting, particularly over the past year, uh, political conditions attached to um, its economic support. And this is what Lukashenko needs. He needs political uh, support and economic support from, um, from Putin. And if political support was more or less unconditional, then economic support has been, has uh, seemed to be attached to certain conditions. For example, Lukashenko has not been able to receive um, a loan since, uh, a loan, um, uh, since um, uh, last autumn. Um, uh, they have been speculations that Russia would be happy to give Lukashenko the three billion which was left from the credit um, that Russia gave to Belarus to build the um, um, Astravets nuclear power plant. However, that did not happen. Um, we can only guess that one of the potential reasons that was discussed was that Lukashenko did not agree to an airbase um, in Belarus. So therefore, um, I think well, even though that obviously uh, tighter sanctions put Lukashenko, push Lukashenko more towards uh, towards Russia, people in Belarus they would like to see tighter sanctions because they want to see themselves as agents of the of change in Belarus without thinking or looking with caution to Russia. Mm, that, that's a very interesting point and uh, quite an encouraging one, actually. Um, I suppose my final question then is, um, you know, if you were offering advice to, to EU leaders and to um, EU foreign ministers as they think about Belarus, what else can they do? You know, what, what are we not getting right? What are we doing too little of or too much of or just, you know, what, what new initiatives should we be taking to improve the situation? Well, I think that sanctions um, is only part of the response. It's only one tool. And so we know from um, history that sanctions have not been really so effective. Maybe there were a few cases when they were effective. But in most cases, if you want to change the regime um, from the West, from outside, the only option is really to invade it, which is not an option. Um, and the, it's not something that is discussed. Well, I'm glad so, you clarified that. Exactly. So, um, so other things, I think, therefore, what is more important is A, to help people in Belarus who suffer uh, repression now, currently, 
and B, to help civil society um, continue its struggle to invest into the resilience of civil society in capacity building of their uh, Belarusian opposition so that they can forge closer ties with people inside Belarus so, so that they become more professional politicians, so that they know how to do hard political work, which has been missing in Belarus for 26 years so that they can mobilize more people into concrete action, um, as protests are also now not on the agenda. Um, the situation that we have seen uh, um, with Belarus, particularly we saw that up until 2020, um, August 2020, was that um, there is no point to invest a lot into civil society in Belarus or Belarusian opposition because people don't want reform and we better divert these funds to countries which do want reform, like Ukraine, for example. And I think that this should fundamentally change because since last year, people in Belarus have been saying very clearly they do want change and they need help with that. So I think that financial assistance to civil society, particularly inside the country, to political opposition, there are some groups which are active in Belarus and which are actually popular in Belarus, um, support to them should be increased. And obviously anything that helps civil society to strive, to flourish and to implement this political change to bring about this political change and I mean capacity building funds that would be more beneficial hmm. I mean going back to Protasevich obviously you know as you indicated um his his big thing was you know the creation of these two very important channels of um news and agitation in some ways, I mean, which he did from outside the country. Um, is there more that, that the EU and uh, the US and others should be doing, you know, to support that kind of independent media um, and to help it to, to penetrate into, um, into Belarus, especially now that some of the, the channels have been, um, if not shut down at any rate, disabled to some extent? Yes, I think even within Belarus, there are new people um, who are there who are trying to enter this space. Well, I can give you one example that many university professors suffered during the crackdown last year. Many of them lost their jobs and they are looking for ways that they can teach and they are looking at YouTube. We have seen uh, several good projects that have appeared on YouTube recently, for example, about gender equality in Belarus, about discussing history, um, creating national narrative, which is a very important thing now with the current polarization of society um, unleashed by the government, but also because of Russia's disinformation efforts. Um, there are people in Belarus who would like to do more of that type of work, and obviously that needs to be supported, but also media inside Belarus, those people who can, uh, journalists who can still visit um, events in Belarus, their equipment is being confiscated, they um, uh, put behind bars. We have now two young women serving several year sentences, for example, to female journalists. Um, they suffer from other types of repression. So any financial assistance to buy new equipment, to cover the fees, um, to help their families survive when these people are behind bars um, would also be very helpful. 
Great, great. Well, it's nice to end up with some constructive thoughts on things that we can do. Uh, Katya, thank you very much indeed. Good luck, and I hope that you will be able to get back to Minsk in safety um, sometime before too long. And um, to everyone else, please keep subscribing to the CER podcast, and uh, we look forward to another broadcast in a couple of weeks' time. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Ian. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.